Hello. Good evening. Is anyone feeling suitably foggy? <laughs> this is great. This is my favourite state for when I'm talking to audiences because I can see maybe a few of the front row and that's it. So you're, you're getting a lot of eye contact, guys, because no one else is. Um, hello. Welcome to the Scare Slam. I'm Ellie. I will be um, guiding you on this perilous journey. Um, if anyone is a bedwetter, please clean up the seat after yourself. Um, there are some scary stories about to happen this evening. Um, you know, the level of scary that you'd want from something called a scare slam. Has anyone been to a scare slam before? Five people. If anyone's overly concerned, just shuffle close to one of those five people. They'll probably know what to do. You feeling confident? Yes, he is. So confident. That's the confident face of a man who's found a face mask big enough to cover his beard. <laughs> Very well played. Okay, I won't keep you too long for this section. I'll just um, dive straight in. The first piece we, piece we have is The Woman on the Ceiling. It's by Julie Barnett. Julie is a writer from Swansea. She has an obsession with drinking tea, eating cake and anything ghostly. She's successfully managed to freak herself out while writing this piece and will most definitely be sleeping with the light on and one eye open from now on. So it sounds like you're all in for a good night's sleep tonight as well. Here she is. She's here. The woman on the ceiling. Writhing around like some terrible spider. Black, whole eyes, voice, like old books. She's climbing down the wall. She's here. Oh, God. Day one. I've caught it. Typical. I've been so careful, too. I swear it was that old guy on the X-13 bus who sneezed on the back of my neck. Thanks for that. Great. Ten days stuck at home, on my own, twiddling my thumbs. Fantastic. Do you know, I haven't been alone in this house for ten years. Always been followed from room to room. There's always someone there watching. Day two. My throat feels scratchy like tiny fingernails have raked up and down my windpipe. My skin prickles, tiny hairs stand on end. One minute I shiver like iced water has been poured down my back and the next moment I'm kick off the duvet, my body slick with sweat. Day three, 2.22 a.m. I try hard to move. The seconds stretch into infinity. My mind is awake. My body is asleep. I'm paralysed. A buzzing sound grows louder and louder and louder in my head. I hear heavy footsteps coming up the stairs. Thump, thump, thump. Something is in the room. Then is breathing in my ear. Fuck. Day four, 2.22 a.m. Why does everything look so different at night? At night, the energy shifts and changes. It becomes sinister. Why does my dress and gown look like a fucking person is standing in my doorway? Why do I feel like I'm being watched? Day five. They say a child born at midnight will never see a ghost. I wish I could say the same about my son. Tom saw them everywhere. It's, it's normal, right? I mean, kids see freaky stuff all the time. It's, uh, they find it really hard to distinguish between what's real and what's in their imagination. I mean, it's all totally normal and definitely no reason to burn down the entire house and call an exorcist. <laughs> He's nine now. Too many video games, I suppose. We bought a new build. 
No ghosts here, no creepy basements, no no bodies in the walls, no Victorian ladies in the attic. <sighs> Just a clean slate. You were born as the Christmas lights twinkled. I screamed you into existence. Cold, metal, stirrups, blood. A perfect baby boy. On the third night, it began. A gentle tugging of the blankets. Tug. 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 Like, like a small child was trying to get my attention. Day six, my fever peaks, the walls bend, the ceiling, it ripples, it ripples like water. A face appears at the top of my doorframe, a white oval in a black void. It stares and then it's gone. Something is here. Day seven. You were two weeks old when I began seeing things, hearing things, voices, murmurs, mutterings, whispers in my ear. I slept with the light on. What little sleep I had was filled with nightmares. The woman in the walls, mouth open in a silent scream, hands around my neck, choking me. I told no one, afraid you'd be taken away. I'd be seen as mad. When you were three, I hear you chatter happily alone in your room. Who are you talking to? The lady, you said. I was making you breakfast one morning when you pointed. Lady. What's the lady doing? I asked you. Screaming. Fantastic. <laughs> day seven, day seven, day fucking seven. I thought she had gone, I thought she had gone and now she's back. Day eight, she laughs at me now, she's mocking me. Leave me alone, leave me alone! Day nine, she's here, oh God, oh God, please help me, someone help me, the smell, oh God, the smell, the damp leaves, something rotten, something decaying, and something dead. She's here. She's climbing down the fucking wall. The air is thick and pungent, the smell of her, oh God. Her hands, they claw at me, filthy hands, dead, cold, clammy hands. She's in my bed, the weight is crashing, the breath leads my body. Her matted, greasy hair is on my face, in my mouth, down my throat. Please stop. She's screaming. A terrible, terrible sound. The roof spins, the walls disappear, and I'm falling, I'm falling! And all I can hear is those terrible screams ringing in my ears, and everything goes black. Day 10, an awareness, light, dancing outside my closed eyelids. I hear, I hear pots and pans, I smell bacon frying, I hear my family, their home, my boy, my boy, oh God, I'm alive, I'm alive. I open my eyes. Something's wrong. Something, something's very wrong. I'm sat up in bed, but that's not me. That's, that's not me. I'm looking down on an imposter, a changeling, a doppelganger. I am on the fucking ceiling. Plaster, paint, dust, brick, the walls distort and bend. I am being swallowed. I am being fucking buried alive. I scream my son's name. That's not me. That's not me. Someone help me. He can't hear me. He can't fucking hear me. He's in the room now. 
She's calling him. She's beckoning him. He hesitates. He knows. He knows. What's wrong, mate? Ted is in the room now, and he ruffles Tom's hair affectionately. You look like you've seen a ghost. Don't be silly, says the other me, looking up at the ceiling. There's no such thing as ghosts. Don't worry, that's not a random creep. He's our, he's our photographer. He's a specific allowed-to-be-here creep. <laughs> and that loud laugh was from his wife. Um, <laughs> this is great, guys. The jokes just write themselves. Um, coming up next, we have got 666 Problems by Sarah Thagel Hamilton. Sarah is a playwright and narrative artist, a former winner of the London Horror Festival playwriting competition. Her poem tonight is inspired by all of the great Gothic poets, Shelley, Keats, Rossetti, Donna, and Jay-Z. <laughs> Sarah encourages you to come and say hi afterwards if you enjoy it, and if you don't, come and say hi anyway, because she is learning Kung Fu. <laughs> You've been sufficiently warned. If you're having ghoul problems, I feel bad for you, hun. You've got 666 problems, but a witch ain't one. It's when you burp, it's the soul departing. When it's out your bum, it's only farting. But a demon lives in the crack of your ass, which is why it gets so sweaty when to you I ask. What's that on your head? Looks like a lump. It's where Slender Man did a focus dump. Willow the Wisp peed in your shoe, and a cheeky chupacabra did a solid in your loo. Lala Rona loves cherry cola. She's guzzled all your Hennessy and said you'll be the death of me. Which is bloody rude, as far as I can tell. It ain't ominous you've lost your shit Cos a poltergeist moved it over to that bit A wendigo is humping your cat While singing Irish folk songs just like that A gorgon changed your name by deep pole Then lost your passport in Cumbernauld A banshee egged your nan and tried her dentures Then lost all her savings in a dodgy business venture And down with stigmata wrote a six-parter Cos it never made sky art She directed topless darts A girl's gotta eat, right? Whatever your doppelganger did some crimes and um, now you're on the register for a very long time. A shapeshifter had your missus on the couch, looking like the dildo you never knew about. You know that time you were feeling a bit shitey? That's when a zombie tried on your mum's 90. A siren used your mobile to make prank calls while tweeting about your dad's anusol. Sorry. Guacamole ain't very holy, which is why it's loved by trolls and sprites and creatures on the dolly. <sighs> Nearly there. Bloody Mary's allergic to dairy. She's swallowed all your cheesy mash and now she's got a nasty rash. She will not listen. She will not listen. Mothman and Medusa are mating on your B-Day and Cerberus is having a three-way. Abaddon spent your club card points on seven C's for his aching joints. A vampire's joined your local authority and now it's got a Tory majority. Thank you, I'm not finished yet. Hang on. A blob spoons your cat when she's in season and talks like Liam Gallagher for no apparent reason. Ooh. The Grim Reaper loves Dua Leaper. He saw her live in Amsterdam and in the day also loved Wham! Careless Whisper, I'd imagine, is his favourite. So what I'm saying is, if you're having dual problems, I feel bad for you, hon. You've got 666 problems, but a witch ain't one. Thank you. That fade wasn't fast enough. I thought I'd have to start rapping as well. Um, I love the fact that the biggest laugh so far tonight is, uh, is about how shit the government is. So it is genuinely terrifying. Um, coming up next, this will lighten the mood. Um, this is, it won't, Feed the World. 
It's written by Rhiannon Owens and it's going to be performed by Natalie Winter. Uh, Rhiannon is a writer for stage and audio. This is her second foray into the horror genre, having previously had a digital performance of her work as part of Uncanny Collective's online horror festival. It's not a genre that comes easily, as she is a bit of a wimp. Her words, not mine. Um, who finds everything a little bit terrifying. Her writing can also be seen as part of Jam Tart Lemon Curd, a double bill of monologues showing at the Hope Theatre from the 26th of October, which is very soon. Get your tickets. Uh, the performer, Natalie Winter, is an actor, voiceover artist, and director. She produces and directs the Ragged Scratch podcast, a new writing podcast for short audio plays, and is a regular player on Blackshaw Theatre. Si Blackshaw Theatre, that's us. We have a sister podcast, Millie Role Players, uh, and they're going doing a show straight after this one, um, which I'll tell you more about later. Um, and this has been derailed by my brain. So sorry. Um, <laughs> this piece is going to be very good. Um, no pressure, Nat. Uh, here she is. Good evening, everyone. My name is Marjorie, and I am an addict. Oh, I know it's not that kind of meeting, but uh, it'll be pertinent later. So, <laughs> I, I, I am also a worrier, <laughs> as my mother said. Marjorie, you're such a worrier. I don't know where you get it from. <laughs> Anxiety, they call it nowadays. <laughs> But she was right. I did worry a lot, and I never really grew out of it. Anyway, my mum went on holiday a little while back. Uh, she went on touring round Central America. I was supposed to go with her, but I get worried going as far as Cornwall, so... <laughs> Uh, well, one of the places that she went to was Guatemala, and she brought me back these dolls, worry dolls, yes, tiny little things, barely an inch tall. The idea is that you tell them your worries, you pop them under your pillow, and, and when you wake up, your worries will be gone. <laughs> oh, I was dubious, yes, but I thought I'd give it a try. I named the first doll Guinevere, and I told her I was worried that there were far too many people in the world. <laughs> I popped her under my pillow and went to sleep. Nothing happened, no. <laughs> but I did try it again the next night. I didn't name this doll, as I was worried I'd offended Guinevere by not giving her a Guatemalan name. So, I told this doll I was worried about all the families living off food banks. <sighs> the next morning, still nothing. But I kept trying it every night. I told them I was worried about the environment and all the greedy people in power. Brexit, obviously. And if I'd ever own a frying pan that was truly non-stick. <laughs> I carried on until I told a worry to every doll. And when I woke up, I was still worried. Now I had a headache. I forgot about the dolls until it came time to change the sheets, but when I pulled the pillows off, the dolls were gone. I looked everywhere, but they'd vanished. I still had this headache. It lasted so long, I started to see things. I'd see figures in the corner of my eye, but when I turned to look, there was nothing there. And then, then came the, the scratching and, and, and what seemed like giggling. <laughs> the scratching was so loud, I was convinced it was mice and what I took to be giggling was in fact the mice squeaking. Maybe they ate the dolls. So I laid mouse traps all over the flat, but nothing was caught. I felt like someone was watching me. Always watching. I looked everywhere. I checked every corner, but there was no one there. I was barely sleeping, and even when I did, I, I often woke to find that I'd been sleepwalking. I'd wake with, with a knife in my hand. Or I'd find myself out in the street next to the road. I was exhausted. One morning, I was staring at the mirror, at the dark circles under my eyes, when Suddenly it dawned on me that the, the scratching and the giggling weren't coming from somewhere inside my flat. No, they were, they were coming from inside my head. And as this realisation came, there, there followed an excruciating, burning pain, the scratching like digging into a raw potato with your 
fingernail, but inside my skull. I screamed and I clawed at my face, trying to get it out, whatever it was, and my ears were ringing so loudly that it blocked out all of the sounds. And then... And then they spoke. Marjorie. Marjorie. <laughs> it's me. Guinevere, we're here. We've come to take all your worries away. <laughs> Obviously, I did the sensible thing and I tried to ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> I hoped I was just tired. Very tired. But they didn't stop. We know what you're worried about, Marjorie. We can fix it, Marjorie. You can make the world a better place, Marjorie. <laughs> This went on for weeks, and then it, it started to make sense, you know, what they were saying, and I started to listen, you know, we, we, we did need less people, less, less bad people, and more food. I started with my boss. He was a bad person. I work in a meat factory health and safety officer, so I knew what to do. I just, I stayed late one night and all it took was a little push, <laughs> a flick of a switch. I wore my ear defenders, so it was quite peaceful actually, just watching the blades whirl round and round as he slowly disappeared. <laughs> and then pop, <laughs> off came his head, out popped his brains. <laughs> so satisfying, it's like squeezing a spot. <laughs> I couldn't stop thinking about it. Pop! <laughs> and all that meat. He was a big man. <laughs> and I'd made the world a better place. Everyone was much happier at the office with him gone. And they all loved Burger Night. <laughs> pop! 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 Like, an, like a scratch I couldn't itch. Do it again, Marjorie. What about him? What about her? No one will miss them. <laughs> But I told them I was worried about them not being the bad people. Well, then it came to me. See, I'm also a bit of a whiz with the computer. So I found people, horrible people, hiding behind their screens. It was all a bit cliched, really. I told them they'd won a contest, lots of free stuff, made it look legit with, with photos and a fake prize line. I probably should have stopped at the embossed letterhead, but I was worried they would suspect, so. <laughs> I rented a posh Airbnb. Had one of the old grinders moved there, said it was broken. I plied them with champagne. It wasn't just champagne. And one by one, I led them out to the barn to get their prize. <laughs> Every pop made me happy. Every pop made them happy. Yes. Marjorie, do it again, Marjorie. <laughs> but there were only five of them. It wasn't enough. See, I told you I was an addict. <laughs> I cooked up the food, took it to the needy, told them it was five guys. <laughs> well, it wasn't a lie. <laughs> it was a lot of work, though, to lure the bad people. Maybe all the world needs is less people and more food. More people, more food, Marjorie. Less people. Save the world, Marjorie. Do it, Marjorie! I had to see it again. Feel it again, that satisfactory pop. And then it came to me. What about a theatre night, I thought. <laughs> you know, I just, I could pretend to put on a show, sell tickets cheap, get people in, hide the grinder out the back, make it a horror show in case people hear the screams, <laughs> put something in the drinks, make them docile, lock the doors, Andy, um, <laughs> explain it all, make them understand. See, it's okay. You'll be doing your bit. I'm sure you care about the planet, about the needy. We'll make the world better, together. <laughs> oh, see now, I'm, I'm worried about you not being the bad people, or at least I, I know you don't mean to be. I don't want you to suffer, not like the others. <laughs> I just, 
Oh, hang on. Close that. Bear with. <laughs> what a good idea, Guinevere. She's so clever. <laughs> right. Who would like to go straight into the grinder and who wants me to slit their throat first? <laughs> Anyone? Is no one else running out the door? Is it just, just that guy? Um, well, thank you all for your sacrifice as willing donors to the terrifying cause. But we will do the rest of the show. That was a giggle I did not like. Um, <laughs> we'll do the rest of the show and, and merge you all afterwards. Good. Um, thanks, Nat. I've got sweaty palms. Someone's just dropped. I don't know. I was going to say their guts, but that sounded gross. They said it anyway. Um, right. We're running to time, which means I get to do a fun props bit. Yay! Yay. Now, in my pouch, which is labelled mint velvet, and it's not a tiny scented candle, because that is presumably all anyone buys from that shop. Yeah, thank you for agreeing, one person. Um, can I have a volunteer from the audience? All you'll need to do is hold out your hand, and I'll put something in it that won't hurt you. No, you're, you're not doing it. <laughs> so, anyone else? Wow. Oh, thank you, front row volunteer. You're easy to get up here as well. Wonderful. Okay, so um, I'm just going to unwrap the package. The package. Now, this is an item that I inherited. Um, and uh, my best friend, Vicky, says, uh, for the love of God, why do you keep it in the house? Salt and burn it, salt and burn it. So, feeling good? Oh, very. Okay. Can you please come to the microphone and just describe how that feels? Uh, horrible uh, comes to mind. Um, oh, its little arms move. That's chilling. Don't like it. It's a toy for fun little children to play with. That was a very good description. Thank you. You can return to your seat. Um, these dolls haven't yet talked to me, but I feel like <laughs> there's someone who could have a listen. <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> I keep them in bubble wrap in a drawer just in case. So maybe they do call out in the night and I just don't hear them. Um, but these are genuine, genuine childhood toys that belong to my grandmother who is shockingly still living. So um, they can't be that cursed unless she's done some sort of deal with them. Um, and she has an extended lifespan on the basis of allowing them to do something absolutely heinous in time to come. So I guess time will tell. Um, there is another doll in the bottom of this bag, um, but it's in several pieces. So I'll just, I'll just leave it in there. That seems like the sensible thing to do. I feel like if I fix it, their power will grow. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to get my bit of paper and I can introduce the next person. Please talk amongst yourselves. Very good. Um, this next piece um, is called Gone by Sasha Ravencroft. Sasha is going to be reading a piece of prose that they wrote recently, uh, which looks at how hard it can be to let go of something or someone and move on. Sasha's company, Rude Raven Productions, are at the London Horror Festival for the first time this year. Their play, A Simple Tale of Love, is performing here on the 29th of October. Again, a date very soon, and you could purchase tickets if you so desire. Here it is. Gasping, rasping, eyes widen, hands clenched tight, and I know what you're thinking. Is this it? And just like that it was. A beautiful, wonderful, swirling, whirling symphony. Erased, deleted, gone. Auntie Carol is in the hallway on her third Americano and starting to tick. My sister's there too, looking prettier than I remembered. She looks at me, I look at her, we smile. 
My dad's brought Henry. He rushes at me, paws reach my shoulders. I was always quite envious of those perfect white teeth. They're getting insistent. How can I leave you when I can't let you go? I touch you, but you can't feel it. I kiss your forehead, but you don't know. I'd wipe a tear away, but it would only be for show. Every night I cried when you finally slipped, and now there's nothing left. I do something quite out of character, and I announce to the room that I love you. My friend of 30 years is biting her nails. She knows I see her. She stops. Piss-ups, make-ups, break-ups. She was always the first to know. You were mine. I never had that before. Then came the treatments, the medicines, the early morning appointments and the consultations. And amongst that all, I tried to hold on to what we had, but it all got lost behind a veil of spurious hope. If I leave now, it makes it real. If I leave now, it makes it real. Your parents are there, pretending they care. It took this to make them take a train. Your mother was sick twice. She said it was facing the wrong way, but I know it was the inconvenience. They look at you from across the room. I keep thinking they'll crack, but the only thing that breaks is the dawn. The night was long. I never thought it would end. Can I whisper you a secret? There's a part of me that's pleased that it has. <laughs> Little Nan comes over to me, wrapping her arms around me, and for a second it felt okay. There was no messing with her. She lifts up my face, tucks my hair behind my ears, and looks me in the eye. I said to her, how can I leave him when I was all he had? There was no messing with Nan. I knew what I had to do. Morris Miners, Lucha Libra and aeroplanes. Sunday newspapers, chip triple fries, snorkeling beneath a clear blue sky. Walks down a disused railway track, vinyl, patio pots and orange walls. Though you said all colours had a name. The smell of cinnamon, the smell of tarmac. Butterflies in my belly. Places we'd been, places we'd go. AstroTurf and other triggers. Flumes, locker rooms, cider and garlic mushrooms and you. And you. Your mother walks over to you. Her voice was so quiet, I'd never known her to be quiet before. <laughs> We're both so sorry, she said. It was five years and three months since you swore that that was it. All those angry words, that adamant proclamation that nothing, nothing would make it change. You stood, welcoming your mother's arms around you, surrendering to her platitude that everything would be all right. And I lie there, motionless as if I was dead, and you look down at me in disbelief because I am dead. I am dead. My sister took my hand like when we were young and little afraid, and I, and I, I said goodbye, though I don't think you heard me. you can prepare yourselves for a tonal shift. Uh, coming up next, we have An Unusual Undertaking by Andrew James Brown, who is a poet, a storyteller, and a national treasure. His work can be seen in the flesh across the UK and in international waters, and can be seen in embalmed form in his criminally underrated collection, Entree. You can get it now before Penguin Classics do. 
don't know why I'm wearing the cape. <laughs> I got carried away. I thought, should I wear it? Shouldn't I wear it? Fuck it. It's just a bit of harmless fun. <laughs> it's worth being this hot for that. Right, this is absolutely true. Once there was a jolly undertaker, a man renowned for many an acre, far and wide the best in the business. Fact, there were rumours of a Faustian pact. He held rapport with the dead and the alive, with friendships on both sides of the divide. He could cheer even the deepest sorrows, especially those of recent widows, for which he became quite notorious. His name was Jones, and he was glorious. This tale, however, must sadly tell how this maestro funeral director fell. To Mrs. Green's funeral, let us go. Before I get confused and lose my flow, Mrs. Green had died quietly in bed. It was her time to go, everyone said. The funeral was to be a grand affair, and what it cost, Ms. Green, her heir, didn't care. She lived down south and had made a pile, so she wanted a funeral of taste and style. Who better to do it than Mr. Jones? of Britain's premium funeral home. His grand reputation preceded him and Miss Green knew she needed him, but she also knew of his notoriety and being a woman of some piety, she treated Jones with the utmost caution, taking every possible precaution, avoiding his twinkly blue Sid James eyes and paying no heed to his silver-tongued eyes. But Mr. Jones was as skilled at charming as he was at digging and embalming. Choosing a shroud one evening in the shop, she felt her guard beginning to drop. Next dawn, she crept from the shop in shame. Mr. Jones got to washing the dame, chatting to the corpse about her daughter whilst rinsing the stiff in with soap and water. After more nights planning the funeral's course, chatting, laughing, drinking and intercourse, the big day came. It was a great event. Everyone said it was cash well spent. After the wake, she bid old Jones adieu. She'd got to get back down south with lots to do. Mr. Jones didn't shed a single tear. It wasn't the first time that he'd been here. He knew there were lots more fish in the sea and plenty more stiffs for the cemetery. So that Sunday, he trotted off to the church, not for solace at being left in the lurch, but to speak to the vicar and tout some work. Mr. Jones was never one to shirk. There's a saying that when one door is shut, another one opens. And sure enough, that is what happened on that fateful day the elderly vicar had passed away. Of course, Jones organised his pal's goodbye, but he wasn't sad to see his friend die. In fact, he was glad of the commission and joyous to see who filled the position. A new lady vicar, fresh from training, as fresh as spring after it's been raining. Mr Jones introduced himself at once and was soon in the vicarage, ensconced, eating pretty cakes and drinking weak tea with this most reverend young lady. It was flu season, so business was good, and Jones couldn't keep up, playing in his wood, knocking up coffins for all and sundry, even working the Sabbath, Sunday. Shit, that one, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> He'd worked with vicars all his life and known lots of women, though had no wife. But working with a woman, this was new, except for those that were silent or blue. And as time passed, he and the Rev grew near. And though I risk offending some of you here, it's best if I keep this bit non-complex and simply tell you they kissed and then had sex. <laughs> the vicar was as keen on enjoyment as Mr Jones was on his employment, but it'd never do if folk found out what these local figureheads were all about. So their liaison continued unseen, becoming first filthy and then obscene. But then something happened to spoil it all. It always does. When young Miss Green paid Mr Jones a call, her father had died for reasons unknown, so she'd hurried back to the family home with plans for a funeral oh so lavish and a strong desire to be ravished. Mr Jones was quite happy to oblige and seconds later was between her thighs going full, full pelt on the parlour floor. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. Jones peeked from the window only to see the good reverend begging a cup of tea. That was a euphemism, you see. Because I can see here, it's in uh, inverted commas, but you can't see that. 
Quick as a flash, he whispered to Miss Green, play dead on the slab, we haven't been seen. The vicar is here and it wouldn't do if she discovered what we were up to. Unprofessional conduct, she would cry, and people would go elsewhere when they die. So, Miss Green on the slab, he drew the bolt and the Reverend danced in as light as a colt. Working at this hour, she demanded. Yes, as you should be, he reprimanded. This one's just been brought in now. It's sad she looks so beautiful, poor cow. She looks almost alive, the Rev replied. I can barely believe that she's died. And she went over to where Miss Green lay and being a good vicar began to pray. When she was done, she turned to Jones and said, you really can work wonders with the dead. But surely you've done all that can be done. Now have a break and let's have some fun. And with this, she gripped him in a firm embrace, slobbering kisses all over his face. Have some respect. Stop it. Stop it, he cried. You're meant to be a vicar and the girl's just died. Precisely, my love. She's dead. She won't care. I'm sick of having to hide our affair. But the lady vicar was far from right. A noise from the slab made her leap with flight. Fright. And she beheld Miss Green, alive and well, naked on the slab, damning her to hell. The vicar turned green. As she trembling spoke, Father, forgive me, she began to choke. Her prayer faded out as she fell down dead. Hers was a great funeral, everyone said. <laughs> Straight after the wake, Mr. Jones left town. He's a hairdresser now of some renown. I especially like how his hair flows behind him as he flees. Um, that was good. Uh, <laughs> you can quote that as you like, as, if you like, as a review. Um, yeah, I, I, I really like that piece, but my mum's a vicar, and I can't help but wonder. Um, her local undertakers, genuinely true, not making this up, are called Mr. Peace and Mr. Sad. So I don't know whether they changed their names before the profession or if the profession chose them by their names. I'm going to read you a story. Thank you. Um, anyone familiar with this book? Well, you wouldn't believe it by the picture, but this is a book for children. <laughs> Yay. Um, it's written by Dr. Heinrich Hoffmann in December 1844. So it's... it's it's a, it's a Germanic-sounding Victorian man. Perfect for writing kids' stories. Um, he couldn't find a suitable book to give his three-year-old, that's three-years-old son, as a present, and instead bought a blank exercise book and set out to write and draw what was to become this, his world-famous picture book. Um, and it's, it's supposed to be sort of like teaching kids a lesson with stuff. So um, anyone, anyone was a bit of a thumb-sucker as a child? No one here was a thumb sucker. Okay. I'm not being euphemistic here. I literally mean sucking thumbs. Um, well, maybe it's because you've heard this story before. And I will show you the pictures because they are very disturbing. This is the story of little sucker thumb. Yes. You're correct to snigger. One day, Mama said, Conrad, dear, I must go out and leave you here. But mind now, Conrad, what I say, don't suck your thumb while I'm away. The great tall tailor always comes to little boys that suck their thumbs. And ere they dream what he's about, he takes his great sharp scissors out and cuts their thumbs clean off. And then, you know, they never grow again. <laughs> Mama had scarcely turned her back. The thumb was in. Alack, alack. The door flew open and in he ran, the long, great, red-legged scissor man. Oh, children, see, the tailor's come and caught out little sucker thumb. Snip, snap, snip, the scissors go, and Conrad cries out, oh, oh, oh! Three O's. Snip, snap, snip, they go so fast that both his thumbs are off at last. Mama comes home. There Conrad stands and looks quite sad and shows his hands. Ah, said Mama, I knew he'd come. <laughs> to naughty little sucker thumb. Just a very calm image of a child having their thumbs brutally hacked off by what can only be described as a pair of scissors with which you would open a fate. 
next, we have... <laughs> Mr. Tumnus by Sam Greenwood. Mr. Tumnus is about a child I do not have in a house I do not own. In this way, I hope it will be very relatable to a London audience. <laughs> Prologue. <laughs> They'd been prepared for everything. They thought, we got this. Sexless mornings, sleepless nights, test-driving prams and parenting classes, vomits and screams. Bring it on, they thought. As it happened, they were not prepared. They had not got this. No, indeed, they had not been prepared for the thing, the cute, horizontal, gurgling thing in pyjamas, to acquire consonants. With the consonants came syllables, with the syllables came words, with words came meaning. With meaning came the kind of power only a four-year-old can wield. The flicker of red hair on little Billy Manning's head had become a flame. The flailing additions graduated to fully-fledged limbs, and the tongue learnt its true power. Where they had once stood proud, her parents now stooped and bowed before her mighty high chair. In the midnight garden was given the respect and attention she considered it deserved. Ready Breck had both sugar in it and sugar on it. And now, this. Hello. Hello, you. Hello. Hello. Hi. Billy used to bite the end off of words somehow. It melted Dad's heart every time. How are you this fine evening? Eyes fine, you're fine, that's good to hear, that's good to hear. Around the child had gathered a menagerie of glass-eyed creatures. They sat patiently in a semicircle next to a JCB. There was a brief, comfortable pause as Dad thought how best to open. What are you doing in the wardrobe, sweetheart? Boxing Day. It was midnight and it was raining gently, misting on the windows. It was later than usual. A knife slid the yellow mass, butter smeared over the bread, and a sandwich was birthed onto a clown-rimmed plate. It was Dad's turn again tonight. This was the house of his own childhood, a welcome inheritance at an age where getting a house by any other means was an agonizing fantasy, and yet... A cabinet shuddered as he carried the offering past it, an old problem with the floorboards. A light flickered and failed as filament died in the bulb. It was a cheap bulb. In the living room, the corners of the living room he left behind grew hungry, dark corners growing as he turned his back. Also, he thought, uh, a childhood habit. Uh, he turned his head to find if the corners were where they should be, a, a childhood habit, and they were. He turned, itched the side of his nose, stamped his feet on the bottom step, a childhood habit, and he continued the climb. The corners crept back into place, waiting. Cheeky monkey. There she sat, baby maglite on, her thumb dangling at her side, what are you doing in the wardrobe, sweetheart? Waiting for your sandwich. No, I's not. I's waiting for Mr. Tumnus in the wardrobe. This is where he lives, in the war warm um, uh, uh, the cupboard. In the, in the big cupboard. Yes, the big cupboard where, where Mr. Tum Tumnus lives and has his sandwich. The blind took in a gentle suck of breath behind Dad, catching on the sill. So Mr. Tumnus eats your sandwich? That's not very nice of him. Don't, don't be a silly daddy. I'm silly. Why am I silly, you cheeky monkey? You're a cheeky monkey, daddy. <laughs> Billy, considering the matter settled, returned to close council with her delegation of toys. What is Mr. Tumnus doing in your wardrobe, Billy? He belongs in Narnia, doesn't he? I don't know. He just came and he lived in my big cupboard. Uh, well, what did you say to him? I said, I said, get out, Mr. Tumnus. You doesn't fright. It's me, Mr. Tumnus. But he, he's smart, and he stayed here, right here, right here, in the big cupboard. Billy nodded. Really? Is he invisible? A ghastly silence fell. You're a cheeky monkey, Daddy. Well, I don't mean to be, darling. But you, sis. Boxing Day, too. Tiny clowns smirked up from the plate as Dad made his way up the stairs, but he couldn't be distracted. His mother has did, had dislocated her shoulder falling down these stairs. They'd laughed about it sometimes. She described the handsome, burly men who'd reset it in the anaesthetic, which made her forget all of the rest. Uh, fortunately for Mum, it was only three short flights of stairs, which contorted round into the top corridor. Still, best not to let the clowns get to him. It was later than usual. A big smile. You're a cheeky monkey, Daddy. I don't mean to be, darling, but you is. Well, that's as may be. 
What does Mr. Thomas look like then, Billy? Well, he has big, hairy legs. Yeah, that's because he's a fawn, do you remember? Yes, and he has hairy legs. Exactly, darling. Does he have a... And it was at this moment that Dad wondered how one might concisely describe James McAvoy's face to a four-year-old. Uh, a, a friendly face. He's, he's got a big red face and a big smile. A big smile. A glistening row of milk teeth bared themselves in the moonlight as Billy's tiny thumbs exposed as much of her growing jaw as she could. Don't do that, darling. I'm showing you what he's looking like. But Mr. Tumnus doesn't have a <laughs> smile like that, does he? Has you seen him, Daddy? Hmm? Not in your wardrobe, sweet pea. And he's got a red face. Yeah. He cast his mind back to the film. A red face like, um, like um, uh, a tomato, the child reiterated. Or grandma. <laughs> Boxing Day, three. To describe the entirety of Dad's journey along the corridor would be indulgent, so I won't. Um, and the room was a fairly standard child's bedroom, uh, except for, for the wardrobe. I, uh, we feel it necessary to describe the wardrobe. An original feature of the house sunk into the wall. It retained its old heavy set of sliding wooden doors. Whatever wood this relic was made from, it was surprisingly heavy, and once rolling the doors made a grinding, unstoppable journey to their new destination. She'll lose her fingers, Mum said, more than once. It has to stop. It hadn't. So here he stood, sandwich in hand, marvelling at the solid barricade of varnished wood now sat smugly before him, closed. They'd never heard them open. They'd never heard them close. But he knew Billy was inside, waiting for her sandwich as usual. Billy would be propped up against the wall with Macapaca, Scoop, Arnold, Penelope, Penguin, and Battered Owl gathered around her, and she'd be waiting for her sandwich as usual, the little tyrant. The handle was cold to the wardrobe's touch as he pulled, as the door ground its way along the rails, as it slammed to the wall with the expected bang. There was the JCB, the owl, the creepy one from the Midnight Garden, the penguin. There was, however, no red-headed girl waiting quietly for her sandwich. It was later than usual. Hungry. So when does Mr. Tumnus come, Billy? He can knock on the window, uh, but I hide it and he came in. He said, uh, uh, hello, and he smiled like tiny thumbs reached upwards. Yes, I know, Billy, thank you. Uh, uh, do you play with Mr. Tumnus, Billy? Not really. I just bring him a sandwich. He, he, he sings sometimes, but I, I don't know the words. Uh, meanwhile, it is important to note at this moment, Frog had just performed an awesome jump in the JCB as Battered Owl scowled from the corner. Why does he need a sandwich? Because he is hungry. Is that what he told you? Yes. And he asked for ham and jam, did he? Yes. Your favourite things. I like trucks. Silence descended in the wardrobe. Dad noticed the cramp in his le left leg, but would not let the suspect slip away so close to a confession. Mr. Thomas just happens to like the food that you like, does he? I to tell you, I has never eaten it. The sandwich, I has never eaten it. I've seen the crumbs, I has never eaten it. Just like you're not going to eat this one tonight. Yes, because I'm taking it away. No, I am, and you're going to go to bed. We've had a nice day, a lovely Christmas, and we're not going to spoil it now. No! What are we going to do? What we are going to do now is that this will stop. No more late nights, no more sandwiches, no more Mr. Tumnus. Please don't take it away. Beds. Now. Don't forget battered owl. Battered owl skidded across the floor. No! How do tantrums always end, Billy? No, I is not tantruming. He is hungry. Billy, he is hungry. You're tired, Billy. You need some sleep. Come on. You have to leave him foods or what? He'll eat you. Come on, Billy, none of that. You'll have nightmares. You're a silly monkey, Daddy. And you're my cheeky daughter. Come on. Good night. Good night. Oh, sod it. Boxing day. Four. He racked his brains. He woke his wife. They searched the house, and the authorities were called, and they did everything. Well, except find their daughter. The 27th. Mum. The next night, they did not sleep. They did not eat. They made a sandwich. And another, and another, and another, and another, and another, and another, a baiting line of sandwiches leading from the old oak wardrobe down the corridor, onto the stairs, and down past the floorboards, the cupboard, and the corners. Uh, Mum watched Dad rave about fawn facts he'd found on the internet, and potions, trinkets, guardians, silver, hemlock, the corners of the house, and uh, 
frankly, with the lack of sleep and the adrenaline and the gnawing emptiness in her gut, she tuned out. Her mother-in-law was frozen on the far wall, staring at her. A grimace locked on her bitter, wizened face. Given the photo's subject, a deflated 90th with an appalling ray of children, dogs, terrible hats, she could hardly help blame the old girl on this occasion. Mum hated this house, hated it as a visitor, as a guest, and now as an owner, and she'd been right. Last Christmas, last Christmas, she'd even caught the old woman singing to the airing cupboard upstairs. Good schools, good air, and good transport links had trumped a deeper instinct. And a free house. Mum left Dad to his ravings as the street lamps went out. The 27th, Dad. Cold air thrust its way in, freezing the sweat to Dad's forehead. Now he was the one in the corner, and midnight came. And the heavy wood quietly shifted along the juddering rail. Dad had closed his eyes and did not open them when steps, haltingly dragging a form from the sarcophagus, judded on the wooden floors of his daughter's bedroom. When they stepped out, clattered unsteadily along the corridor with a heavy, uncertain step thump, step thump, step thump, step. And then it fell. For Mum had not closed her eyes. Mum had hidden upstairs with the heaviest goddamn object she could find. <laughs> she saw it falter out, she saw it stagger towards the stairs, grasping at each passing meal. It was uh, smaller than you might expect, uh, squat and stumbling, vulnerable. When hit on the head from behind atop three short flights of uncarpeted stairs, very vulnerable. It fell the full hat-trick and it did not rise again. Dad's eyes opened and saw what lay crumpled at the bottom of the stairs and he felt a deep thrill of recognition. A song popped uninvited into his head, one of those old songs you've no idea how you know. Upstairs, a small red-headed child clambered out of her wardrobe and carried on the tune. Uh, well, we've officially reached the end of the uh, roster of performers this evening. Um, if you didn't manage to on the way in, on the way out, I recommend uh, scanning one of the posters with a QR code with the programme on, and then you can read all about what you've just heard, because who doesn't love homework? Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to end by reading you one more story from this delightful book. Um, this is the dreadful story about Harriet and the matches. <laughs> now, traditionally, they do tell children, don't play with matches, but usually just explain because it's dangerous. But um, I really urge you all to use this with your children. Um, one of our performers tonight, uh, Andrew, informs me that um, one of the stories from this book is his child's favorite thing ever. In, he said she fucking loves it. <laughs> How old is your child? Four months. Four months. <laughs> But she, she likes it. I mean, it's dark, isn't it? Um, okay, so. It almost makes me cry to tell what foolish Harriet, foolish Harriet befell. Mama, bloody Mama's back. <laughs> Social services have not done their job here. Mama and nurse went out one day and left her all alone to play. Top tip for parents, don't do that. Now on a table close at hand, a box of matches chanced to stand, and kind mamma and nurse had told her that if she touched them, they should scold her. But Harriet said, oh, what a pity, for when they burn, it is so pretty. They crackle so and spit and flame. Mamma too often does the same. <laughs> mamma is not, she's not on it, guys. The pussycats heard this and they began to... It's genuine cats, just to highlight that. Began to hiss and stretch their claws and raise their paws. Meow, they said. Meow, meow. You'll burn to death if you do so. <laughs> so Mama's lax, but the cats are on it. <laughs> but Harriet would not take advice. She lit a match. It was so nice. It crackled so. It burned so clear. Exactly like the picture here. She jumped for joy and ran around and was just too pleased to put it out. The pussycat saw this and said, Oh, naughty, naughty, miss. <laughs> I don't know where they're from. Um, and stretched their claws and raised their paws. Tis very, very wrong, you know. Meow, 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 meow. You will be burned if you do so. 
and see, oh, what a dreadful thing. The fire has caught her apron string. Her apron burns, her arms, her hair. She burns all over, everywhere. Then how the pussy cats did meow. What else, poor pussies, could they do? They screamed for help, t'was all in vain. So then they said, we'll scream again. Make haste, make haste, meow, meow. She'll burn to death, we told her so. So she was burned with all her clothes and arms and hands and eyes and nose till she had nothing more to lose except her little scarlet shoes and nothing else but these was found among her ashes on the ground. Some good fire retardant shoes. And when the good cats sat beside the smoking ashes, how they cried, meow, 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 what will Mama and Nursey do? Crack open a drink, probably. Their tears ran down their cheeks so fast they made a little pond at last. And you can see here that's Harriet violently burning to death um, and a pile of her ashes with some sad cats. Um, and I mean, there's nothing more, but I assume when Mama came home, she just went, oh, not another one. <laughs> so there you go. I recommend you all read this wonderful book to all the children that you know. Um, thanks so much for coming this evening. Uh, we do the Scare Slam every year. This was our sixth one. Um, so I'm no doubt we'll be back again next year. Uh, I will alert you at this point, as I promised to do earlier this evening, to the show that's on directly after this one. If you haven't had enough of the fright yet, and why would you not? Uh, everyone's always got more appetite for, for fear. That's what they say. Um, <laughs> at 8.30pm in this very room, uh, Lights Out is occurring. Um, and this is... Well, I'll just read the blurb. Um, no one knows what happened to the Blackout 4. Only that none survived. Millie role players hope to say, solve this mystery live. Part seance, part campfire tale, part role-playing game, Lights Out sees four brave players place themselves in the shoes of the Blackout Four and fight against fate to seize a glimmer of hope before all the lights go out. So I'll be in the audience. I will be getting a drink from the bar um, shortly. Hope to see you all there. Uh, you can find us, Blackshaw Theatre, on all the social medias. Um, we're very good, high-quality content only. Lots of cat pics. Um, Scan the QR code on your way out. That's all the admin. Thanks very much. Have a lovely evening.